How often have you heard someone say, oh, I pay my taxes, you know, I'm a taxpayer. So that commitment is a way of saying that you are the sort of person who gives back to the people in their neighborhood, the people in their community, and the sort of person who deserves to be listened to by their government. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, get commercial-free versions of every episode, and occasional members-only bonus content, visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The David Pakman Show, Economic Update with Professor Richard Wolf, Off-Kilter, The Zero Hour, and Jacobin Radio. We now have more to comb through and think about. We still don't have that much because the way in which a lot of the sort of mechanics of it are going to work have been missing from the plan, including from what we've heard from the White House, including from what we've heard from Steven Mnuchin. But at least from what we have, we now can make a little bit more detailed of an analysis and try to get a better understanding of of what the impact would be of what Donald Trump is proposing to do with taxes, including the economic repercussions of what he's trying to do. So there's six primary actions that we understand and have deduced are part of Donald Trump's tax proposal. And we'll go through them one through six. Number one, there's going to be a a proposed reduction of individual tax brackets. Now, these are federal tax brackets. So whatever state tax you have or none at all, depending on what state you live in on income, that's separate from this. The proposal would reduce the number of individual tax brackets to only three, a 10% bracket, a 25% bracket, and a 35% bracket. This will lower taxes for a majority of individuals, but what's really important here is how these reductions are going to be distributed, uh, and we'll get to that a little bit later, okay? Number two from Donald Trump's tax plan, it would double the standard deduction to $24,000 for a couple filing jointly. Okay, so a standard deduction is when you do your taxes, let's say you make $40,000 and you had $10,000 in what would be called qualifying deductions. You would list those on your tax return and the $10,000 in deductions would make your adjusted income only $30,000 and you would be taxed only on $30,000. Even though you made $40,000, only $30,000 are taxable based on your deductions. However, for most people, their individual deductions or as they're called itemized deductions are not that high. So the IRS provides what's called a standard deduction, which everybody can take regardless of what their actual deductible expenses are. The joint, uh, the married filing jointly tax deduction this year is $12,700. Donald Trump would nearly double that to $24,000 for a single person in 2017. It's $9,350. And my, my guess is that that would also uh, go up uh, to, to a little more than half, I would assume, of that $24,000. So if you have more than the standard deduction in deductions, you can deduct more, but everybody can take the standard deduction and couples uh, filing jointly will be able to take a $24,000 tax deduction. Now, that will decrease the taxes you pay, but it relates to item number three on Donald Trump's tax plan, which is that there will be an elimination 
of most itemized tax deductions. There's two major tax deductions that are very popular and that apparently would stay in Trump's plan. Those are the mortgage interest deduction, meaning if you have a mortgage, each monthly payment you make, you're paying some principal and some interest. The interest that you pay over the course of the year on your mortgage is deductible. It lowers your adjusted income. And charitable contributions, the tax deduction for charitable contributions would stay. So the standard deduction would go up, the ability to take as many itemized deductions would go down. Number four, and this is where we really start to get into the huge windfall for the rich, for Donald Trump, for his friends, there would be a total repeal of the estate tax as well as the alternative minimum tax. Now, why is this so relevant to Donald Trump? Two reasons. Number one, Donald Trump has a very, very large estate. He has a lot of money. What exact amount of money you think he has doesn't really matter. It's a lot of money. And uh, by eliminating the estate tax, Donald Trump will personally benefit in terms of the amount of money that he will be able to pass on to his children, grandchildren, etc. So Donald Trump and in fact, many of Trump's cabinet members, the number of billionaires on Trump's cabinet will benefit significantly from this. And number two. You might remember that what I consider totally overblown Rachel Maddow segment where she had one or two pages of Trump's 2005 taxes, which told us almost nothing. But one of the things that we did learn from those taxes is that most of the taxes that Donald Trump did pay in 2005 were paid because of this thing called the alternative minimum tax. And by eliminating the alternative minimum tax, again, it would be a huge, major windfall for Donald Trump's family, for many of his friends, for many of his political appointees, cabinet members, etc. Number five, Trump's tax proposal would end the 3.8% Obamacare investment income tax. So this is a tax that was put in place by Obamacare uh, to uh, uh, fund some of the expenses associated with Obamacare. The elimination of that investment income tax used to fund Obamacare would disproportionately help those who pay taxes on investment income. And who are they? Well, they're much more likely to be the upper middle class, the rich, the super rich, the mega rich. Uh, the ultra super mega rich, the people really at the very, very top. So another big, big boon for Trump and his buddies. And number six, Donald Trump would reduce the business tax rate to 15%. I don't want to dig that much into that piece right now, but obviously the bigger your business, the better this is for you. The current rate on paper is 35%. Uh, but something that's really important to, to keep in mind is that we often hear the right point to the just incredibly high business tax rate in the United States. It's not true that 35% is the highest business tax rate in the world, but very few businesses are actually paying 35% because a, a number of different accounting mechanisms, many of which we've talked about on the program over the last several years, allow businesses to significantly reduce their effective tax paid. So it's again trying to solve a problem that's not a problem. The 35% tax rate in the US on businesses is not paid by huge, huge businesses. Many of them actually pay zero effective tax rate. Uh, so what will this do to the national debt? 
because Republicans claim to care about the national debt, particularly under President Obama. They really cared about it. The national debt would increase drastically as a result of a major increase to the deficit. Of course, the debt is the accumulated debt. The deficit is the year-to-year surplus or shortfall in terms of government inflows and outflows of money. Uh, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin was asked, well, what's going to happen? How are you going to pay for all this? And he said simply that this will pay for itself and that the, quote, closing of loopholes would pay for the tax cuts, which would drastically increase the deficit. Uh, that's just not true. We've seen no evidence to suggest that. Later in the show, I'm going to talk to you about how historically uh, cutting taxes in this way has never been a good thing for the economy. And as usual, Republicans cared about the debt and the deficit when President Obama was president. Even though President Obama cut the deficit, the debt still went up because we still had a deficit, but the deficit was reduced. Under Trump, vague claims that the tax cuts will pay for themselves are somehow acceptable. Uh, tax cuts for the rich have never helped the economy. And here's the gold mine. Donald Trump argued during the campaign for a very long time that it doesn't matter whether his policies would increase the deficit on paper because they would so significantly improve the economy that they would pay for themselves by growing the economy. So I hope you're sitting down for this. Steven Mnuchin said that the tax changes Donald Trump has proposed would spur the economy to grow by 3%. 3%? Donald Trump slammed Obama just last year for having only 2.6% growth. This entire plan, this huge overhaul, which is a massive gift to corporations and to rich people, is going to get us from 2.6% growth under Obama, which according to Trump was not acceptable, to 3% growth after all of this deficit exploding overhaul and series of changes absolutely and utterly stunning do you ever slow down touch your feet to the ground underneath faster and faster straight for disaster During the campaign, as I have told you before, both Mrs. Clinton and Donald Trump pledged to reduce the corporate income tax here in the United States from its current legal level of 35% down to, I believe, Mrs. Clinton's promise was about 20% and Mr. Trump's was 15%. One of the reasons, and I've criticized some of the other reasons, but one of the reasons is the following. If you do that, you will lead American corporations to bring their profits home to the United States. What a wonderful sounding story 
phony as a $4 bill, but it sounds good. These companies have money abroad, and wouldn't it be better for us if they brought it home? Well, let's do the economics of it so you are not fooled. First, why do corporations have money abroad? And by the way, estimates these days are in the range of $2 trillion worth of profits made by American companies that they have stashed abroad. The answer is it's a mode of tax evasion. It turns out that under U.S. law, and this is not the law in other countries, many other countries don't do this, but under American law, if you earn your money abroad, or you can at least make it look like you do, and you keep that money abroad, you are not required to pay any tax on it to the United States government which has a lot to do with why so many com companies are showing their profits occurring abroad and keeping them there because it's a way to avoid paying Uncle Te Sam your taxes. If you've wondered about those statistics, you see sometimes about how corporations get away with murder in the way of not paying taxes. Well, here's one of the major ways they do it. They keep the money abroad. Does this mean, however, that it doesn't affect our economy? Answer is stone cold wrong. Actually, Republican Senator John McCain's committee unearthed all of this some years ago. It is perfectly legal to make your profits abroad, keep them there, pay no taxes, deposit them in a bank, say in Ireland or in Spain or wherever you want, and then have that bank for you invest that money in the United States. No problem. That's not considered, quote unquote, bringing the money home because it's the account in the foreign country where you put your profits that is making the investment and that's not held to be the return of the money. So that all that will happen if they lower the income tax rate on corporations is that they may indeed bring the money home but it'll just be an accounting process. They've already invested that money. And if they've invested it in the United States, that's part of what they decided to do. If they've invested it in other parts of the world, that's what they've decided to do. Those decisions won't be any different after this than before. They just will have gotten away with not paying their taxes. And yet the talk in the mass media, among the Trump advisors, and even among the Democrats, is it always about this bringing home? Back in 2004, this was done. A tax holiday was offered to companies that brought their money home with the same idea. If they bring it home, oh boy, they will invest it and they will have a, a time building up the American economy. We did it. They took advantage of it. The money came home. No investment resulted. They used it to beef up their salaries, to pay out to their dividends. This is a bad joke. And by the way, let me conclude. You know what the easiest way would be to have them bring the money home if you still want to believe in the fakery? Here's the solution. Attach a 40% rate of taxation on profits left abroad versus the 35% here at home. They'll bring that profit back right away to avoid the 40, because 35 is cheaper. If there was a government representing the people of the United States, that's what they would do, rather than give the corporations yet another tax break. And Mr. Trump is in the forefront.
Vanessa Williamson recently authored a book called Read My Lips, Why Americans Are Proud to Pay Taxes. She joins the show next to talk about how taxes became a four-letter word and what Americans really want when it comes to tax policy. So it's often said that tax has become a four-letter word, a dirty four-letter word, that is. And your research actually finds something very different, that people widely view paying their fair share of taxes as a civic duty. Tell me a little bit about your research and and overall what some of your findings are. So over the last six years, uh, I've looked into Americans' tax attitudes, and I've looked at them in surveys, in interviews, I've looked at how they vote on tax issues, uh, and I've looked at public statements about taxation, and I've just been struck by the extent to which Americans' views of taxes are just so different from the conventional wisdom. So it doesn't mean that people are necessarily happy about where they think their money's going or everything that's happening in Washington, but people see being a taxpayer as a civic responsibility, as evidence of being the kind of person who contributes to their community. And when you think about it, it's obvious. You know, how often have you heard someone say, oh, I pay my taxes, you know, I'm a taxpayer. So, you know, and that commitment is a way of saying that you are the sort of person who gives back to the people in their neighborhood, the people in their community, and the sort of person who deserves to be listened to by their government. And you you actually point out in a a New York Times op-ed that you wrote last year that just 3% of Americans disagree with the sentiment that paying their fair share of taxes is a, a civic duty. And you point out for reference that that's half the share of Americans who believe that the Apollo moon landing was faked. Um, but, but part of what I actually would love to get into is you point out in your work that you um, that the Boston Tea Party is often misremembered as an early instance of anti anti-tax fervor. You, you point out that that's actually not at all what the Boston Tea Party was about. Give us a little bit of a history lesson. Yeah, so this is a funny thing. I think that, you know, we tend to view history through the lens of the present. And so there's so much anti-tax fervor, particularly on the right in America, uh, at the elite level, that we forget that history is often very different from our sort of modern concerns. So the Boston Tea Party is probably best understood as opposition to a tax cut, and in particular, opposition to a corporate tax cut. Um, uh, colonists in the United States were uh, very upset that the British government wanted to provide sort of a special tax privilege to a particular company, a company sort of deemed too big to fail. And uh, this was the uh, British East India Tea Company. And so they, uh, the colonists who did not want to have their market flooded with this particular kind of tea that was uh, going to come in at sort of below local rates of, of payment, they didn't want their market flooded, they didn't want a monopoly. And so they went into Boston Harbor and threw the, the tea in into, into the harbor. And so what is, you know, really, to me, if it has an echo in the modern context, I mean, to be a little ahistorical, it's much more like Occupy than the Tea Party, right? And for years, it was not even called the Boston Tea Party. It was called the destruction of the tea. So this sort of anti-corporate uh, property destruction, it becoming a, a touch point, touchstone for the right is actually extremely ironic. And you actually got the idea to write this book and to do this research during the rise of the Tea Party movement in 2009. Um, how did they take that sort of misremembrance of of history uh, and and channel it into into their movement. So that's that's exactly right. My last book uh, looked at the origins of the Tea Party and the effect of the Tea Party on the Republican Party as a whole, really particularly looking at how the grassroots and the elites and the conservative media work to push the party rightward. Uh, but I was at a Tea Party rally and I was just struck by how often these people who were 
very, very angry and frightened about what they thought their government was doing, uh, still regularly described themselves as taxpayers and really stood on being a, a taxpayer as kind of a, a, a public standing, right? That I'm the sort of person who the government should be paying attention to and my uh, interests are not being are not being met. So a lot of what you've looked into in your research is not just about what it feels like to be a taxpayer or the connection between being a taxpayer and doing one's civic duty, but also fairness. There's a, a big current that runs throughout your work of tax fairness, and that's a lot of uh, what actually gets people mad about taxes. It's not, you find, how much they're asked to contribute. It's much more widespread um, that uh, people get angry about the feeling that the wealthy aren't aren't paying their fair share. Um, tell us a little bit about how that plays out in, in the conversations you had with, with taxpayers and, and in the survey research. Yeah. So if you ask Americans uh, what bothers you most about uh, paying taxes, 14% say nothing in particular. Uh, about three-fifths will say either that corporations aren't paying their fair share or that the wealthy aren't paying their fair share. What percentage say the amount that they're personally paying? 7%. Right. So that's a really very small percentage of the public who sees their own tax costs as the sort of primary motivator of their attitudes about taxes. And so what that means is that people aren't particularly opposed to the idea of paying taxes for public goods. In fact, people commonly refer to it, you know, as uh, a way of contributing to their communities. You know, it's like being a good neighbor, paying your taxes. Um, but they are concerned that, you know, this is an important civic responsibility that I'm fulfilling. Of course, the corollary of that is to be very angry when you think that someone else isn't paying their fair share. And a recent NPR poll actually released just this past week uh, really seconded that finding and and put some um, some updated numbers to it, finding that as many as 75 percent of Americans, and that's across the board, so that's going to include people no matter how, they're, how they feel politically um, and who they voted for in November, uh, but 75 percent of Americans believe that millionaires should be paying more in taxes. That's exactly right. You can ask that question about uh, whether people at the top should be paying more any of a number of different ways. You can call it heavy redistributive taxes on the rich. You know, I mean, you can really push the language very far and still find large uh, majorities in favor of raising taxes at the top. Now, there was a moment in the uh, the presidential campaign this past year uh, that really kind of brought all of this to the fore. Um, and it was a moment during one of the presidential debates. It was between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Um, and, and there was a moment where Trump sort of came out and bragged. He bragged that avoiding taxes, that figuring out how not to pay taxes was evidence that he was smart. He was literally bragging about avoiding paying taxes. And you point out and you argue that that moment in the campaign really, uh, it symbolized, and I'll use your words here, a fundamental divide between President Trump and the, uh, and he was then candidate Trump, and the electorate on a core question of civic responsibility, yet he won anyway. Yeah, I mean, one of the, you know, on any of a number of issues, I think you could say that President Trump's uh, moral standing is rather different from the average Americans, and yet uh, he still became president. I mean, the really interesting thing to me about what Trump said is it, it represented a break, not just between Donald Trump and the sort of general American public, but between Donald Trump and previous generations of Republican leaders. You know, it's been common on the right to say that, you know, government doesn't work very well and to have a whole sort of an anti-tax position. You know, you all, everyone remembers Grover Norquist and his sort of tax pledge, the taxes should never be going up. Um, but 
that didn't mean that Republicans typically said it was okay not to pay your own taxes, right? You'll remember that Mitt Romney got in a lot of trouble over this, right? His tax rate was comparatively low, and he insisted repeatedly that his tax rate had never fallen below, I think it was 13%, right? But he insisted again and again that his taxes weren't high enough to be acceptable, right? And so this represents a real break in the Republican tradition as well as the Democratic one uh, to this new stance of that, you know, getting out of paying taxes is okay or even admirable. Um, that is not how Americans have felt over the last 40 years, and it will be very interesting to see if uh, Trump's attitudes change minds. Do you see hypocrisy in the pride that President Trump takes in avoiding paying taxes and the strong um, uh, drive towards we must be cutting all kinds of spending? Um, uh, and it, it doesn't seem like it's really driven in, in his rhetoric by a desire to reduce deficits explicitly, but uh, we saw in his so-called skinny budget released earlier this year, I mean, it was really sort of a scorched earth budget cutting almost everything except for defense spending. Do you see hypocrisy there? Well, I think that uh, one of the most interesting things about the legislative agenda that we've seen this year is the extent to which when uh, cuts to government services become obvious, they become extremely unpopular. And we saw this with the effort at ACA repeal. You know, this legislation has never been overwhelmingly popular with the American public. It's poorly understood and it's seen with a great deal of suspicion. Uh, and it, the Republicans had really hung their hats on on dismantling it. Well, when push came to shove and people were actually going to lose a government benefit that they recognized, it turns out that those things were pretty uh, important to people and they were something people were willing to fight for. So take us back. At, at, we were talking a little bit about the Boston Tea Party and some of the misremembrance there, but it, it's not an accident uh, or a coincidence that there is a tremendous gap between how Americans feel about paying taxes and even about actually having their taxes increased or about millionaires, for example, paying more uh, and where elected officials in Washington, but also in state and local government are and, and what they feel about whether it's actually kosher or something they can seriously consider, let alone run on, um, to say that, that increasing taxes is part of what they plan to do. What got us there? How much of this is a story about Grover Norquist? So I think that uh, there's a strong, you know, I was saying before that sometimes history is remembered through the present. And I think there is a, for the current generation of politicians, there's a very strong memory of a particular period in American history, the sort of Reagan revolution, and particularly the tax revolt. This was an event that started in California with a very strong measure to cap property taxes uh, spread to other states, and it's had huge impacts on state budgets ever since. Um, and I think people sort of viewed that moment as uh, evidence that Americans are unwilling to pay for government services. They see government as wasteful, and they're just not willing to pay the bills. Uh, but what's interesting is since that period, so that was the late 70s and early 80s, if you look since then, there has been a steady increase over decades in the frequency with which voters at the state level have voted to increase taxes, right? So we see this, um, you know, over time, a steady increase to when you reach the last 15 years, if you put a measure on a state ballot to raise taxes, you're as likely as not to see that measure pass, right? So voters confronted with the opportunity to literally raise their own taxes are taking that opportunity very frequently. Right? And, and actually more frequently than they did in the past, you find in your, in your look back at, um, uh, at the history on this. That's exactly right. So there's been a real shift. Uh, and I think one thing that really matters is if politicians are willing to make the case uh, for a tax increase to pay for something people care about. 
right? So uh, I think there's some new evidence suggesting that if you uh, put a tax increase on the ballot and talk about the fact that, you know, at a state and local level, that money's going to schools, that money's going to hospitals and other you know, roads, things that are just tremendously popular locally, people are willing to make a calculation and be like, yeah, you know, I'll chip in a little extra for those services that I believe we need to have. Well, and thinking about the state and local consequences of, of some of this, despite the, this broad willingness by the American people to pay more in taxes, even if it means they're paying more, not just other people are tang- paying more, um, there is this just broad fear. Um, I, I, we were talking before we started taping um, about uh, my remembering back to my legal aid days in, in Philadelphia when um, the, the, uh, the city was trying to figure out how to fund itself. And one of the ways ways that it started, and this is before Ferguson, one of the, the levers that they started to pull was um, aggressively going after largely low-income people, largely low-income black and brown people in the city um, through fines and fees that these folks could not afford to pay, but that were basically a, a tax by another name for coming into contact with the criminal justice system. They were going to great lengths not to use taxes because of tremendous fear of what would happen to them at the ballot box. Yeah, I think that that is uh, a real problem of not being willing to be honest about taxes, not being willing to trust the American people to be capable of balance, you know, having a budget and thinking about that and thinking about costs and trade-offs. I think we need to respect the citizenry a little more when it comes to taxes, uh, particularly because when we don't, we end up with these kinds of consequences, these sort of backdoor tax systems that are extremely unfair, extremely regressive, and also, you know, undermine what should be the primary responsibility of the police, which is keeping a neighborhood safe and, you know, turning them into sort of a a tax collector by the back door. That's just not, it's not why anyone would join the police force. It's not um, what we want our, we want to see in our communities. And so I think that, you know, if I could, you know, make a recommendation to politicians at a state and local level, I think, you know, have a little faith that you can tell your constituents, here's what we got to buy. Here are the things we're going to spend the money on. And you can convince them that it's a good idea to spend that money. And, and you know, not just in ballot measures, but you see it in surveys, too. Americans are willing to vote for tax increases, are willing to say that taxes should be increased even on themselves for all kinds of major social priorities in terms of education, in terms of health care, in terms of infrastructure. I think that that's a case that you can take to the American people. And, of course, another context where this plays out on, on the regular is Social Security. There's this broad um, and widespread and across party lines and across income levels support documented by poll after poll um, th- that Americans are um, not just interested in strengthening benefits and expanding Social Security, which is wildly popular, but they're also willing to pay more in taxes to see that happen. Um, and a, a piece of that obviously being uh, raising or eliminating the payroll tax cap, which would mean that millionaires and billionaires would be paying in all year long, just like the rest of us, but people also willing to see their own payroll taxes increased. So I guess my question to you um, in the final couple of minutes that we have is, how do we close that gap? How do we get to a point where um, it, it, people in Washington, and, and particularly elected officials, but also elected officials at all levels of government, um, start to recognize that not only is raising taxes not politically toxic, but it's actually what their voters are asking for? I mean, I think it's going to be a long conversation. I find it quite difficult to convince people here in Washington that, you know, maybe maybe give the American people a little more credit. Um, but on the particular issue of the payroll tax, I think that's an ex- excellent example, right? This is a tax that is, frankly, very expensive for working people, right? But it is also 
regularly the most popular tax that people pay. Now, how can that be possible? It's because people see the cost right there on their pay stub, and they see the benefit. They know that it's coming, and they think of it as a fair benefit because it's going to people who worked and chipped in, right? So um, it's kind of a miracle, and the way I talk about it in my book is sort of a miracle of tax infrastructure that you've managed to make um, a tax uh, easy to understand and the benefits easily associated with it. And, you know, when I asked people about, you know, people remember the taxes on their pay stub as a general rule. They remember the payroll taxes. But when they talked to me about it, they didn't have much to say about the tax. They just wanted to talk about the benefits, right? So I think that you can um, you can create universal programs with uh, broad-based tax bases uh, to support them. And, you know, you when you do that, you create the most popular government programs we have. Social Security is the only federal program that I've found that um, gets the level of approval that you see for local services like schools, roads, and hospitals. The only federal program that's up there with those kinds of numbers is Social Security. Today's episode is sponsored by the Dollar Shave Club. Thanks to them, I no longer have to go to the store and choose between cheap disposable razors that give a cheap shave and spending a fortune on those gimmicky razors with silly features no one needs. Plus, they have their Dr. Carver's Shave Butter. It's just like it sounds, imagine. It's transparent for a more precise shave and helps prevent ingrown hairs. So when you combine the Shave Butter with their Executive Razor, the blade just gently glides, giving such a smooth shave. And you too can make the smarter choice. And for a limited time, new members get their first month of the Executive Razor with a tube of the Dr. Carver's Shave Butter for only 5 bucks with free shipping. After that, razors are just a few bucks a month. That's a $15 value for only $5. In your first month's box, you'll get an awesome weighty handle, a full cassette of four blade cartridges, and a tube of the Shave Butter. After the first month, replacement cartridges ship automatically at their regular price. But not to worry, there are no hidden fees and no commitments. You can cancel anytime you like. And remember, you can only get this offer exclusively at dollarshaveclub.com slash best. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash best. One of the problems, I guess I would say, writing about politics nowadays is there are so many fireworks exploding at any given moment under this Trump, Ryan, Mitch McConnell government that some important developments and ideas uh, get overlooked, I think, um, certainly by the mainstream media and sometimes certainly by myself as well. I, I don't give them the attention they deserve. And one of them that I know you're writing about is the people's budget, which uh, the Congressional Progressive Caucus uh, puts out every year. I've written about it in the past. Honestly, I've not had a chance to focus on it yet this year, but this is the progressive alternative to the mainstream budgets we used to see coming out of the Obama White House, and certainly uh, an alternative to the Republican budgets that are being proposed. Uh, Trump has only given an outline, and then the Republicans in Congress, of course. So this is, and this was the incubator for, among other things, the career of uh, Bernie Sanders, who was the, I believe, the first head of the Congressional Progressive Caucus when he was in the House. So. Um, You've looked at that, right? I have. So what did you see in there this year? What were some of the high points for you? Well, first of all, you got to dig to find it because one of the 
highlights of the Progressive Caucus budget is that the media simply will not let the public know it exists. The Progressive Caucus is, I believe, the largest group of Democrats in Congress. We often hear about how the Democrats are this or that. Well, there's different uh, wings of the Democratic Party. The progressive wing, call it the Bernie Sanders wing if you want, comes up with these budgets every year to present a realistic alternative to what the country usually gets sold on. And uh, the progressive caucus budget, what it does is it cracks down on corporate taxes. It adds new brackets to taxes on the wealthy, and then it does the things that that we, the people, would want to see our government do. And, and let me give a, a little bit of an overview of, of that idea. We're, we're supposedly a democracy where we, the people, are supposed to be making the decisions. Uh, in that form of government, we, the people, making decisions to spend money is by definition, government spending is by definition things that we want to do to make our lives better. Now, the the Republican conservative corporate machine has pounded out these ideas that things like government spending is a bad thing. But by definition, if, if there's a democracy and we say, let's do this, then what we're doing is things to make our lives better. So here, here's an example of some of the things that they have in this budget. They put $2 trillion into a 21st century infrastructure program. Now, that sounds like a lot, but hold on. If you, if you simply tell corporations they have to bring back the literally more than $2 trillion they have stashed in tax havens outside of the United States and pay the taxes they owe on that, Right there, you're getting almost a trillion dollars at once. So, and that two trillion dollars uh, is over several years. Yeah, but I was going to ask, what is it? Five years or something? Uh, five or more. Yeah, but yeah. but we have a three point six trillion dollar deficit in our infrastructure. You know, not just the roads, but the waterways, airports, ports, all kinds of things have fallen behind because since we started the tax cut frenzy, we've been deferring maintaining our infrastructure. Never mind high-speed rail, you know, nice things that would really boost our economy. Yeah, that's so there's, and, there's and by the way, just thing. to interrupt for a second, Dave, that $3.6 trillion, as you know, comes from the American Society of Civil Engineers, which is not typically thought of as a hotbed of leftism, and that's based on their assessment of all the, uh, the D grade. I think it's a D or D minus grade that they give to American infrastructure. And that includes things like uh, the need to repair bad water pipes, like the ones that yeah. poison children in Flint, and things like uh, nuclear infrastructure that people right. have a vested interest in making sure is well-maintained, right? Levies, yeah, levies, things like that. Right. Now, Trump says he's proposing a trillion-dollar spending plan, but first of all, he came, he came out with his budget proposal that actually dramatically cuts infrastructure. What his plan is, is to give tax breaks to corporations so they can then go work on the infrastructure. Then we give them the infrastructure, our public property, and then they charge us tolls. That's Trump's, he calls it a trillion dollar plan. He says he's going to spur investment in infrastructure, private investment. So just to make that clear. Okay, affordable health care, they bring in the option for states and the means for states to transition to single-payer, meaning Medicare for all health care systems. They, uh, 
There's just so many things they do. Here's one. Ensures the justice system is fair and effective for all Americans by increasing funding for voter protection and legal assistance programs. What you want to do is you want to go to the website cpcbudget.org and just start looking at some of the details of this plan that we never get to hear about uh, in military. They, they don't They don't immediately cut military. What they do is they change the way the military budget is analyzed and allocated to, uh, first of all, they get rid of this thing called the sequester, which was just this silly across-the-board cuts thing. Then they change the way we look at the military to start taking out all the corporate handouts, you know, the the Lockheed, the uh, General Dynamics, etc., things that get thrown in, and evaluate what we need, which then begins a process of cutting back in a lot of areas, which is so essential to do without threatening our security. Uh, There's just an entire list here of pathways out of poverty and empowering the middle class, supports a minimum wage increase, collective bargaining rights, discretionary funding to invest in women, communities of color. It's just, it's, oh, there's one more point, because as I look at it, I keep coming up with new things. It's a very detailed and comprehensive plan. Every time they put this out, Trump put out his tax plan the other day, two pages, remember? This is a detailed, comprehensive plan by legislators who understand the process, the budgeting process, and come out with a plan that we could pass immediately. And, you know, the other thing that's striking about this, and this is something that's always frustrated me about the uh, Congressional Progressive Caucus budget, going back 10 years probably now, is that the media, the mainstream media, always dismisses it as kind of a fringe left position that they don't need to cover. But when you start looking at these individual budget items in it, every most of the positions they take are the positions that are most popular with the American people. Don't cut Social Security, expand, protect Medicare, repair our infrastructure, create jobs, raise the minimum wage. On issue after issue, polling shows that this group, which is larger, I remember when they used to cover the Tea Party group uh, caucus within Congress and its budget like crazy, but this group, which as you point out is larger, uh, is taking positions that are much more popular with the American people and yet never seems to get ink, as we used to say, or airtime in the mainstream media. Well, they say it doesn't get ink because the public isn't uh, uh, rallying behind it and the public isn't real- rallying behind it because it doesn't get ink. One of those kind of paradoxes, I'd say, because it it's, it's like, oh, I'll give you, it's like if the Democrats had had debates that people could see, <laughs> Maybe they, you know, never mind, I won't get into that. Right. We'll touchy fighting. subject for a <laughs> lot of people. But I, by letters. the way, I agree with you. It's free advertising, yeah. and it's yeah. uh, it's a way to get your message out to people who otherwise wouldn't watch. But uh, And the point being that by not covering it, which is intentional, they don't get the information out to people that this budget exists, that they could rally behind it that they could call their members of Congress and say, hey, wait a minute, why aren't you backing this? And the members of Congress now kind of do dismiss it. And the ones that aren't in the Progressive Caucus, they can say, well, it's just a fringe idea. You know, nobody's behind it. There's all these bearded hippies, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. So the says one bearded hippie to another. Yeah, exactly. The Progressive Caucus of Congress, it's the Congressional (laughs) Progressive Caucus, cpcbudget.org. So you tell me that the money trickles down
stupid clown Cause it's clear to me that the money trickles up From the sweat and the blood that the workers living down there in the mud So who's their protector now that the governments of Poland and Kowtow And bow down to the ground at the feet of business Don't make political prisoners Who's their protector now that the governments of Poland and Kowtow Bow down to the ground at the feet of business Yeah, but it's all I know You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and maybe a little inspired, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, spread the word about the people's budget. Now, of course, it's easy to criticize a budget or a tax plan that's entrenched in corruption, cronyism, and pandering to corporations and political donors. The op-eds and think pieces practically write themselves. But unless we offer a strikingly better alternative that lifts up all people and proves a peaceful and prosperous world is truly possible— all the criticism in the world will be for naught. As you just heard from the Zero Hour, what most people don't realize is that a guide to that alternative path already exists. The Congressional Progressive Caucus puts out a progressive alternative budget every year called the People's Budget. This year's subtitle is A Roadmap for the Resistance. It's chock full of well-thought-out, progressive ideas that actually work and the details on how we'll pay for them. Here's just a taste of what it says. It calls for $2 trillion in infrastructure investments to transform energy, water, and transportation systems, and $100 billion to increase access to reliable high-speed internet. It allows states to transition to single-payer healthcare systems and lowers the cost of prescription drugs. It ends corporate tax breaks for offshoring American jobs and profits. It closes corporate tax loopholes and raises taxes on the wealthiest few and expands the earned income tax credit and the child care credit. It invests in development of community-oriented policing reforms and increased funding for voter protection and legal assistance programs. It funds public financing of campaigns to curb special interests influence. It calls for $1 trillion in effective early learning opportunities and a child care for all program. It invests in women, communities of color, and their families. It implements immigration reform and includes a pathway to citizenship. It makes debt-free college a reality and invests in computer science opportunities for all students. It supports the minimum wage increase and collective bargaining rights. It ends subsidies to oil, gas, and coal companies and closes their tax loopholes while investing in clean, renewable, and efficient energy and green manufacturing. It eliminates veterans' homelessness and increases their access to mental health care as well as job training opportunities. And it even invests in our defense system while promoting peace through increasing funding for diplomacy and strategic humanitarian aid and increased funding for refugee resettlement programs. And that is just the tip of the iceberg. In summary, the people's budget invests in our country to ensure its people prosper now and for generations to come. Is it perfect? No, of course not. But this is the path we want to take. Improvements can and will be made on the way. Head over to cpcbudget.org to read the full budget and share it far and wide. Because of its extreme lack of media coverage, we highly encourage you to write a letter to the editors of local and national media outlets asking them to cover the people's budget in depth. If you can, write an article about it yourself. At the very least, share it on social media and talk about it with your family and friends. Because if no 
one knows there is another way forward, we're stalled before we can even begin. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if showing America there's an alternative to Trumpism and heartless conservatism is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about the people's budget via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. Liberal view, not the classical liberal view, but sort of contemporary liberal view uh, on taxes is, is not really that different in some ways, right? I mean, I know I've heard plenty of campaigns being waged by progressive groups or unions or whoever in society saying that X corporation or X rich person needs to pay their fair share in taxes. And so what's wrong with that framing about the uh, about rich people paying their fair share? Well, I think uh, as socialists, we need to be very careful with this perspective because oftentimes we adopt it ourselves when we talk about taxation. But usually liberals try to counter this libertarian view by basically saying something like this, that, that a person or corporation's ability to pay should determine the amount that they pay. And so this, this, this view kind of treats taxes as, as kind of a necessary evil in our society, that that it's something that, that we need to do because there are other values that are of equal or more importance than the idea of freedom. And in particular, liberals put, point to the value of fairness, right? That they, they think it's just fair that there isn't uh, incredibly high levels of, of inequality, that people that are making exorbitant amount um, pay some of that. And, and actually, this rings true in some way uh, for a lot of people on the left. We can hear it echoed a little bit in Marx's famous dictum, um, from each according to their ability, to each according to their need. And I think this basically this liberal counter to the libertarian view leads us back into something of a conundrum. Because libertarians are basically able to say, well, why is it that fairness trumps the rights of individuals? Right? Why is it that your value trumps my value? There are essentially two different kinds of values competing with each other. And you, know, you say that fairness is more important than my freedom. I say my freedom is more important than fairness. Right? Exactly. Exactly. And I think, I think as socialists, we need to sort of take a different, um, a different perspective on taxation, one that I think more effectively counters uh, both of those perspectives. This sort of gets into what... Uh, political scientist and Jackman contributing editor Corey Robin talks about uh, reclaiming the politics of freedom, that we should not be ceding that that idea of freedom uh, to the right, but we should be claiming it as, as the left. So it's, it's ours anyway. Um, Absolutely. Uh, so what you're getting at is that uh, we're not just talking about fairness versus freedom. We're talking about uh, when a rich person has this freedom to hoard as much wealth as they want to, uh, 
they are actually taking away the freedoms of mass numbers of other people. That their supposed freedom uh, of enrichment means the the taking away of, of freedoms and the erosion of freedoms for mass numbers of people. Right. Right. Absolutely. And I, I think that you know, as as socialists, when it comes to thinking about taxation and redistribution more broadly, uh, our view is is really fundamentally about expanding freedom to people. And also a rejection of this idea or this assumption that's in both the libertarian and liberal view that there's actually something called pre-tax income, that actually people have income that reflects their own hard work. This is central to the stories that so many uh, CEOs and other rich people tell themselves and they're sort of central to their political philosophy, right, is that uh, their wealth that they've accumulated through their corporation is all the result of their own blood, sweat, and tears that they've poured into the company. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's the, you know, we've all heard it a thousand times that, that you know, somebody has an idea, they go out and they start a company, uh, they, they build a product, and, you know, people buy it because they want it, and, and that all started with that individual person. But as, as people on the left, I think we really need to reject this. Um, and I think this is a key first part of kind of like the, fo- the, f- the socialist view of taxation, that actually income generated in capitalism is, is not the result of individual effort. It's, it's the re- result of a collective effort, a social effort that's only made possible by a particular set of property relations, and that's supported actually by tax-funded state action. This is, this is kind of absolutely uh, critical to understand. In, in both the liberal and the libertarian view, Income is the result of individual effort and possessed privately before the state intervenes to take a part of it. But this is actually one of the core fantasies that capitalism is founded on. I mean, we we know that the capitalist economy is not actually self-regulating. It never has been. It requires state action in a number of ways that are actually absolutely fundamental uh, to keeping it going. And that requires taxes. I mean, you could just think about a couple of examples of this. Think about property rights, property rights that give people ownership and control over productive resources while others are excluded. You know, these are property laws that are actually enforced through through states uh, with taxes. Or think about how uh, the government manages labor markets by providing schooling uh, to make sure that the skill needs of, of firms are met. Or how the government enforces other laws like antitrust or tort or contract or criminal to ensure that there are stable market interactions or, or how the government maintains working infrastructure to make sure that you know, uh, market interactions uh, run smoothly. I mean, even libertarians, or some of them, admit that state control over the money supply and interest rates might be necessary for the, for the economy, for the government to be able to sort of rein the economy in when, when inflation's uh, increasing or to sort of encourage growth. Although they tend to want to use that power in the service of dispossessing uh, unions and working class people broadly, but yes, they believe that they should be they should have that power to do that. Right. right. That's been that's been the historical effect. But but I mean, my basic point here is that that all of this is done with taxes. So the idea that that somebody actually has some sort of pre-tax income is a is really a bookkeeping trick, right? It's not. It's not a reflection of the reality. There's simply no income out there without tax finance state action in the first place. And I think that's a, that's an, a really important first step for, for people on the left to, uh, when we're thinking about what taxation is and what our perspective should be on it. 
so there's the what you're saying now is that rich people's wealth is only possible. It's only possible for them to accumulate wealth through public investments, through taxation. You know these, these past and present tax expenditures that that, that allow them to uh, start accumulating money. I mean, there's also the basic Marxist proposition that uh, what is wealth? You know, how, how do capitalists get wealthy but from stealing the surplus value from workers every minute of their life on the job? Right. 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 I mean, to, to your first point, I think that, you know, the, the, that state uh, tax finance, finance state action is actually uh, fundamentally critical. And we can actually see all sorts of different ways that corporations benefit from welfare, right? Corporate welfare. I mean, uh, there's about $30 billion, uh, spent on farm subsidies, and that's 80% of that is going to uh, major farm corporations, not small mom-and-pop shops with a dozen, you know, free-roaming chickens on, on their back lot. Uh, we, we, the state spends about $75 billion a year on other corporations to sort of promote things like energy, different kinds of research and development to different things. So there's a massive amount of state spending to, to provide a context in which corporations can make profits. But to your second point about exploitation, I think that's absolutely critical because I think uh, as socialists, uh, the next sort of step in our sort of analysis of what taxes are needs to be the understanding that income inequality, the income inequality that we see in our society and that has grown in our society is, is due to the, to the fundamental fact that class is actually relational. This is a really kind of critical point, I think. Uh, to boil it down in really simple terms, capitalists are able to accrue massive amounts of income because their workers don't. Or, you know, to state a kind of obvious point, Workers make their bosses more than they're paid. And this is really where exploitation comes in, into, into our story, right? That, that, that because uh, uh, employers have access to protective resources, whether it be a factory or, uh, or the technologies to make computer chips or the land or whatever the case might be, because they have access to those resources, they're able to hire people. And they're able to hire people precisely because they don't have access to those resources. And all that is actually made possible through tax finance state action, right? That, that we have property laws that are, actually, um, that are actually enforced. As a brief aside, this is uh, one of our favorite points to make at Jacobin about this relational nature of class. Uh, on, on the night of the Super Bowl, I tweeted from the Jacobin account, uh, Tom Brady is a worker, <laughs> which, uh, you know, Tom Brady, of course, he makes millions upon millions of dollars. He makes way more than most people do in a society, more than the average worker. Uh, but he is he does not own the uh, the means of production. He is uh, however much money he makes, he's making more money than the, than what he gets paid annually uh, for his uh, his you know, Patriots overlords. Uh, so, you know, Tom Brady is exploited. Right. LeBron James exploited. Brady and James unite. You have nothing to lose but your chains. <laughs> Brady has a couple other things he needs to lose. He's got some mental chains that he needs to lose right. first. Um, but, and they could also, I probably wouldn't mind if Brady paid a little more uh, in his annual taxes on yeah, his however yeah. many millions it makes a year. Um, so... You mentioned in the beginning, you know, we were talking about the libertarian conception of freedom is essentially like a, a freedom to steal. 
uh, steal from workers and, and, and takes away people's capacity to achieve any kind of real freedom, any kind of positive freedom. You threw that number out in the beginning about something like $200 billion per year that we would have annually uh, if people were paying even the, the amount of uh, the, the percentage of taxes that the 1% paid in the 70s. Just talk a little bit about that idea. I mean, if we had that money, we could fund all kinds of social democratic programs. We could have free higher education. We could have free health care in the United States. And I think many people who are listening to this podcast understand that that's a good thing, right, that, that we have free education and health care and all that stuff. But it's also that means that we would have an expansion of freedom for millions of people in this country, right? Yeah, and that's actually the important third kind of part of the socialist argument, which is that uh, the the taxation of the rich and the distribution of that money downward is actually a really critical means of extending freedom, not actually curtailing it as libertarians argue. And it's it's very it's a very critical means of extending both what are what are called negative and positive freedoms. This is a these are this is an idea that goes back to um, you know, famous liberal political philosopher Isaiah Berlin, and he, his basic point was that that there are negative freedoms, which are kind of freedom from coercion, um, freedom from somebody forcing you to do something, but then there are also positive freedoms, which are freedoms to do things, and you need resources for that. Libertarians uh, are sort of are all about negative freedoms and being free from coercion. But even on that point, even on that point, taxes are fundamental, right? Taxes fund all sorts of provisions that offer offer its citizens freedoms from the private tyranny of firms, for instance, laws against child labor, laws against the physical and sexual abuse of of workers, laws about work and health uh, standards. These are all things that are tax financed. Laws about slavery, like if we didn't have, if the state did not enforce laws uh, that were basically not allowing me to own you, you know, we would find that slavery would be a it's thing. pretty messed up that that freedom has been taken away from me. <laughs> right, you know, this it's it's a result of coercion. Yeah. Um, but so even on even on even on those grounds, uh, libertarians um, their argument doesn't hold up. Um, what they don't care about at all is positive freedoms, and this is something that that socialists c- should be concerned with as well. And that's the that's the freedom to actually realize your goals, realize your dreams, to live a, f- a flourishing life, right? And you need resources to do that. So when when we redistribute, when we sort of say that we should sort of tax the rich and sort of um, move that money into other sectors of society, what we're what we're actually doing is we're we're giving people the capacity to sort of achieve their goals. Whether that be whether that be through education to develop skills to sort of go into the kinds of occupations and, and forms of work that you want to, or just being able to enjoy a vacation somewhere, resources are needed needed for, for for these kind of things. They're needed to kind of realize people's goals, and so this is this is kind of the socialist view is that is that actually taxation is fundamentally about freedom. The 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 income that the one percent or the capitalist class, however you want to think about it, has. Is an income that was 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 kind of generated through this the fact that that they have property rights to things that allowed them to hire others, and that taking part of that and sort of redistributing it actually creates more capacities for people who don't have those property rights. All right, Mike. So I haven't quite fully worked out this phrase yet, but but I'm going to try this out on you. So we always hear from sort of nationalistic, bellicose right wingers, freedom isn't free. But they're they're right, right? Freedom is not free. 
And the way that we are going to pay for freedom is by taxing the hell out of rich people so we can expand our freedom. Taxation equals freedom. <laughs> We're going to workshop this a little <laughs> bit, but, but I'm, I think we should, if nothing else, walk away from this podcast with the reclamation of freedom isn't free. We just heard clips today, starting with David Pakman breaking down Trump's disastrous tax plan. Economic Update explained how we should really deal with corporations stashing their profits overseas. Off Kilter spoke with a Vanessa Williamson about why Americans are actually proud to pay their taxes. The Zero Hour discussed the annual People's Budget put out by the Progressive Caucus in Congress. Our activism for today is to spread the word about the People's Budget because no one else will. And finally, we just heard Jacobin Radio looking at taxes from a very different angle than we usually hear in this country. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, this is Kevin from Louisiana. Just listen to your systematic racism podcast. And uh, I just want to add to it that there was coincidentally about a week ago, an NPR fresh air episode where Terry Gross had on authored a Richard Rothstein, and he was talking about the housing programs under the New Deal and talking about how they were catamount to a state-sponsored system of segregation in which people of color were purposely excluded from all the suburbs, which was something that I was unaware of because I've, you know, of course, I'm a Bernie Kratz, so to speak. I've been touting the New Deal to my conservative father for ever since Bernie, Bernie started running and it was just something that uh, another piece of systematic racism that was implemented back then so I knew everything about FDR wasn't great but uh, it was something that I was unaware of so just wanted to see if your listeners wanted to give that a listen like I said it was on NPR Fresh Air about a week ago called A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America So keep up the good work, Jay. I appreciate it. Hi, Jay. This is Trent from Salt Lake City, Utah. Just finished the Free Speech in Age of Fascist episode. Amazing episode. Thank you so much for doing it. I especially liked the two competing liberal ideas, namely uh, Antifa, where free speech is restricted in some cases. And then the, the more traditional liberal view, where freedom of speech, you know, free speech should be defended no matter who is speaking and whether or not it is convenient to the left or not. I personally have felt that I prescribe more to the traditional liberal values. I believe that liberal democracy is fundamental to a competing you know, ideas, a marketplace of, a marketplace of ideas. And that that's important for a democracy. But to be honest, in the age of Trump, in the age of fascists, I feel that those values have been challenged a little bit. Uh, if I'm to be honest with myself, you know, <laughs> am I comfortable with Nazis going and, and marching down a, a Jewish community? No, I, you know, that, I definitely would be extremely uncomfortable with that. 
But I don't know if I am still willing to support legislation to repress that sort of free speech. And I, I guess I'm at a crossroads whether I really do believe that hate speech is included in free speech. Um, and I feel that I've talked to a lot of friends and I feel that a lot of people are a little bit um, confused on truly how much they support the idea, the traditional liberal values of free speech. And I'd really love to get your opinion on it. I was hoping that you would mention that perhaps in your, your last in that last episode. And not only your personal opinion, but maybe you could cite uh, certain programs or certain things that support your opinion. Um, I feel that you have some really good insight and perspective on that. And that might help me and my other friends that are maybe a little bit confused on what we think. That uh, might help us out a little bit. Anyways, I love the show. Thank you for your hard work. And keep it up. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or explanation of something so we all understand it better, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, first of all, to Kevin and his comments on the inherent and systemic racism built into our federal housing policies— Yes, that is a huge issue, very interesting and in-depth, and I have touched on it in the past, but admittedly, it's been a little while. So in addition to the recommendation that Kevin had, if you want to hear what I have had to say on it in the past, I recommend episode number 908. It's called Unfair Housing, Unfair Society, and also episode 987, which is not entirely focused on housing, but definitely touches on it, and you know the the rest is racism, economics, housing. It's all a swirling mess of terribleness, and that's what that episode is. Nine eight seven, the double helix of racial and economic inequality, and so I'll link to both of those on the show notes, sort of underneath the bit about my final comments. If you want to go find them. Secondly, Trent and his thoughts and questions about these competing liberal values of free speech. Is free speech the highest ideal of a free society and the, the pinnacle of American freedom, or is unfettered free speech so dangerous that it can lead to uh, fascism and genocide and therefore should be curtailed because that seems like a fair trade-off to not have genocide? I, th- I think it's an interesting question, and you know, Trent asked my opinion on it specifically, and what I find inter- you know, I've been thinking about it for a few days, and what I find interesting about my opinion is that I don't have a really strong opinion. And so I was frustrated for a while. I was like, oh man, you know, Trent's asking me about my opinion. I should probably have a strong opinion and tell him and think like, here, here is how I think we should go. This is the direction the country needs to go. This is either the policy we need to have or this is how people should act. And, and, you know, cause first amendment freedom is only about government regulations, all of the stuff about college campuses and who's allowed to speak in, in in public or you know semi-private events and who gets protested. Literally none of that has to do with quote unquote free speech, capital F, capital S, free speech in America. None of that's a first amendment issue. That's just sort of how we think things should go because we're told you should let everyone speak. 
that's what freedom of speech is all about. And it is kind of, but not really. Uh, so, you know, so I've been thinking about this and I'm like, man, I, I, I just don't have that strong of a, uh, of an opinion. What's up with that? Why can't I, you know, come up with one? And, uh, and what I realized is the, just the fact that I don't have a strong opinion is sort of interesting in and of itself because so like I'm 34 it's probably been about 29 years since the first time I said something mean to someone else and then taunted them saying that I was allowed to say what I had said because it's a free country. That's how far back you have to go in anyone's life to see when they start getting saturated with the propaganda about the importance of free speech in this country. And other countries don't run their society that way. They don't have the First Amendment. And so... They just treat freedom differently, and, and therefore everyone grows up with a completely different mindset about how those freedoms should be balanced. Because that's the thing. There is no ultimate unfettered freedom anywhere. So all of it's a negotiation. Even in America, you can't say things that intentionally incite violence against other people. That is not covered by free speech. So we're already in a place where we recognize there are limits, and we're just negotiating after that. So anyway, I, I, you know, wrestled with it for a few days trying to think, like, should I have a really strong opinion about this? And I thought, I don't know. I think the fact that I don't have a strong opinion is almost evidence enough that this is a fascinating conversation. And, and when I heard that interview, the Antifa guy saying, basically making the argument against free speech for the sake of heading off potential genocide, I thought, holy shit, is that the first time ever in my life I have heard a cogent, thoughtful argument against free speech that really made me sit back and think, hey, maybe there's something to that. Maybe there are some downsides to free speech I hadn't thought about before. Maybe there are reasons to curtail it. And, you know, where does that leave me? Well, it, it just leaves me with having heard one interesting argument. I, it, I, first of all, one argument isn't enough to make anyone change their mind ever, or it shouldn't be. You know, it should be a lot more thoughtful than that, get into a lot more depth and detail. And one, one you know, hearing one argument isn't enough to repeal 30 years of propaganda about how I value free speech. So what I found valuable in, in you know putting that in the episode was this is an argument that should be heard. And it, it was absolutely inspired by the fact that even though I very rarely, if ever, see the Sunday chat shows talking about politics in the morning, I happened to see the Sunday chat shows uh, sometime recently, and they were talking about Berkeley and the quote-unquote freedom of speech issues going on there and students protesting against Ann Coulter speaking. And so what the Sunday chat show did was they had on Ann Coulter, the person who was supposedly not allowed to speak, and Robert Reich, who is generally progressive, but is also a professor at Berkeley. So they thought, okay, here's a conservative and a progressive, and they don't agree on anything, and they were sort of introduced that way. Hey, these two people don't agree on anything, but they do agree on this. 
Those students at Berkeley are terrible and wrong and stupid, and free speech is awesome, and treating Ann Coulter this way is terrible. And so Ann Coulter and Robert Reich just went back and forth agreeing with each other for, you know, five or ten minutes or however long the segment was. And then the segment ended, and I thought, okay, so why were the students protesting? Could you at least explain their point of view so that we understand? But no, in America, there's no room to even understand the argument that, hey, Ann Coulter shouldn't be allowed to speak at a university. Why in the world does no one ever go to a leader of one of those protests and ask them, what is your philosophical underpinning for thinking that protesting is the right thing to do instead of either ignoring it or letting them speak and then having a counter protest where, you know, you have your speakers that say everything that other person said was wrong. Like, let's listen to them and understand their argument. But no, we, we don't allow that. We just have a conservative and a progressive on TV together who agree with each other that the other progressives are wrong. So I, I heard that and was just incensed because I had heard that interview on On the Media with the guy from Antifa explaining very cogently why sometimes restrictions on free speech are for the greater good. And then on TV, there was just nothing anywhere like that. And it leaves the viewer with the idea like there is no counter argument. If you grow up in America, freedom of speech is super awesome and there isn't, there isn't another side, so don't worry about it. Uh, free speech is awesome, and um, that's all anyone has to say about it. On the other hand, another listener was uh, commenting on Twitter saying, Antifa is not liberals, they're progressives. I would sacrifice my beloved free speech for a society that is kind to the vulnerable. And also said, I think Americans fetishize freedom of speech to the point of irrational fundamentalism. And so I completely agree with both of those statements. I think that Americans fetishize freedom of speech to the point of irrationality so that you can't even have a discussion about it. And I also agree with the statement that I would sacrifice my beloved free speech for a society that is kind to the vulnerable, but I haven't yet been convinced that that actually is a choice I have, that if we restrict free speech, will that lead to a society that is kind to the vulnerable? I don't know that that's the path to get there. So in the meantime, I'm certainly not going to advocate that we start uh, going down that path uh, until I know a whole lot more about it. But the one last thing I will say is just to emphasize a point that was made in the original clip with the guy from Antifa talking about restricting free speech is that the argument, the, sort of the slippery slope argument, where if you restrict it even a little bit, then you'll end up restricting it a lot, I think is ridiculous because we're the only country that super, super fetishizes free speech the way we do. And there are a lot of other countries that are super free. You can totally say whatever you want, especially when it comes to press freedom. There are a shitload of countries that are more free than ours, at least according to the Press Freedom Index. You can look that up for yourself. We are in the satisfactory level of freedom. Uh, there are you know, a couple dozen countries in the 
amazingly, like wonderfully free section. And then we're in the slot down from that. Like, yeah, you're pretty free. It's satisfactorily free. You could be a little more free. It'd be nice if you were more free, but we're not. So it's not like we got freedom on lockdown and we know how to do it and, and we're totally better than everyone else already. Uh, so the idea that if we began restricting freedom of speech a bit in these like targeted ways, trying to prevent, you know, as that argument was being made, eventual genocide, something like that, the idea that we will ourselves then tumble into an anti-free speech pit of despair is, I think, ridiculous. So I know it's a wishy-washy opinion, but that's all I've got for you at the moment. Now, before I go, just another quick thanks to Dollar Shave Club for sponsoring today's episode. They are the smarter choice where you can get a great shave at a great price, conveniently delivered right to your door. And for a limited time, new members get their first month of the executive razor with a tube of their Dr. Carver's shave butter for only five bucks with free shipping by going to dollarshaveclub.com slash best. After that, razors are just a few bucks a month. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash best. Now, as always, keep the comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained See